0: I forgot I can move around up here. That's kind of fun. Just going to explore things again and get real wild and crazy. Um, Like I said, we are so excited to be able to be back together, to have you joining us from home. A couple of announcements that I have. I mean, you're going to have to buckle up next week because we didn't get to have a staff meeting and put our heads together and, like, take the world by storm. But it's going to happen, so be ready for it. Um, But the biggest announcement, the most important announcement I have this morning, is that our life groups are starting up again. Yeah. And Jason had a great meeting last night with the leaders. They're excited to be able to um, encourage you in community. We call them life groups, not because once you join one, you're in it for life, but we call them life groups because we want you to have a place where you can do life together where you can be known, where you can pursue God together, where you can ask questions that maybe you wouldn't like raise your hand and ask in the middle of a church service. And I know that life groups for me have been so formative in my life. I don't know who I would be without a community of believers to stand with me, to encourage me. And it's not like you just sit in a room and call each other out like, "Hey, you know, you need to be better at not sinning." Um, but just simply watching people live out their faith in front of me is so beautiful, and it makes me a better Christ follower because of it. And so if you have been kind of considering, I don't know if I want to join one, will you join one? They are awesome, and we would love to get you connected. We have different groups that meet all throughout the week, all sorts of different types of group, but there's married groups, there's mixed groups, there's young adult groups. Women's, men's, I don't even know because I'm not in charge of it. So I might have just lied about a couple of things. But here's the scoop. Jason is in charge, and he knows what's going on. And so if you sign up for a life group on your online communication card, and you just kind of check that box, you can also text the word group to the Brookview number. And we'll have Jason get in touch with you and find out what a good day of the week is for you and a good fit for you is for group. Um, That's it. That's all I got. Let's do this.
1: Hello. Hello. If that doesn't get your blood fired up, along with Jen's announcements, of course. Good morning, you guys. What a beautiful day. Are you kidding me? It's so good to see like people. Gosh, quarantining for two weeks. Can I just say it sucks? So it's good to be back. Um, All right. We're going to launch into this series. As a, as a psychology major, how many of you knew I was a psychology major? Yeah, a few of you knew that. Uh, as a psychology major at Western Washington University, go Vikings. <laughs> one of the foundational classes that we took, that kind of everybody took, was called personality theory. And so we looked at like the most influential philosophies from the most influential theorists about human behavior. So like Carl Jung. Collective unconscious and true persona and introvert extrovert or Ivan Pavlov, right? Classical conditioning. Pavlov's what? Dogs. Yeah, and all that. And then B.F. Skinner and operant conditioning and uh, later on in the degree, I got to train rats, which was really cool, with rewards and punishments. And then Abraham Maslow, and what's he famous for? Anybody know? Hierarchy Hierarchy of needs. And of course, many, many more, okay? Okay. Uh, by the way, were, are there any other psychology majors that are in here? Yeah. Just one? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Deb, I knew you were good people. Yeah, it totally makes sense. You guys, it, it, it was like, it was a fascinating class. Um, and the, the timing of it was kind of cool for me because I had just become a follower of Jesus. And so while I was simultaneously trying to understand like the teachings of Jesus about human nature and life and all that, uh, I was getting all these other thoughts about human nature, about what makes people the way that they are. And it was super captivating to me. It was really interesting. Um, But the most influential personality theorist by far was, anybody know? Yoda. Well, that's good, I, Yoda, <laughs> really good. Okay. Anybody else, a personality theorist, super famous psychologist. Freud, thank you, Sigmund Freud. He, he's like the godfather of personality theorists and a lot of his work is just kind of, let's, I mean, if we can be honest, it's kind of creepy. Um, and so he gets criticized for good reason but his influence on the way that people think about people in our culture now and even in the world of psychology, it is unparalleled. And it has, his theories have been built upon by many, many, many others. Now, let me, let me just give you one example. Freud kind of disagreed with the main premise that was left over from the Enlightenment, that human beings are primarily rational creatures. Freud said, you know, not so fast. Human beings can be rational, yes, but we make all sorts of irrational decisions every single day. Yes, people can be rational, but often they aren't. he, He said that we are run by what he called our unconscious drives. This cocktail of internal impulses and what neurologists or neuroscientists now call our animal brain. You guys heard that? Our animal brain. You don't want to be living through your animal brain. And, and Freud said that that means that we are far more vulnerable to manipulation from the outside and from self-deception from the inside than any of us, at least in the West, really want to believe. Now, ironically, even though Freud was Jewish, The first power brokers to take his ideas seriously were the Nazis, who used his view of human nature to design their propaganda strategy. Like Hitler was a master manipulator of people's unconscious drives. He was especially adept at stirring up two basic survival emotions, I want and I fear. Hitler preyed upon unconscious drives. And then after the war, Freud, Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, who was an intelligence officer in the American army, and he had been in advertising before the war, and then there was the war. And after the war, he brought his uncle Freud's ideas to Madison Avenue. He came home from the war with a profound idea after watching the Nazis. He was like, if the Nazis used propaganda to shape Germans during the war, could we use similar tactics to shape Americans during the peace? He pitched his idea to business leaders. And today, Bernays is known as the father of American advertising, or the father of public relations, or the father of spin, depending on, you know, who you, who you look to. Now, most of us have never heard of Edward Bernays, and that's on purpose. In his book entitled, get this, Propaganda, he said, here's what he said. He said, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. Now, okay, I'm not like a huge conspiracy theorist. I'm not really prone to that uh, at all. Like, I'm actually far from that, very slow to get on any of those trains. But it has become widely known that both before and after World War II, an alliance developed between bankers, politicians, and businessmen, like a clandestine agenda to get Americans to buy more stuff. Okay, so Paul Mazur, who was a senior partner at Lehman Brothers, a massive investment bank, like huge player in this, wrote this. This was in the Harvard Business Review. Okay, this is not for the average American. This is for people that do business. Here's what he said. He said, we must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Or take a look at this from uh, Victor Lebo. He was a renowned marketing consultant. And this is from an article that he wrote for the Journal of Retailing. In 1955. Again, this is not for the average American, this is for the professionals. Here's what he writes He said, Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals that seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social accept- acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressure is upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food, his hobbies. We need things consumed burned up worn out replaced and discarded at an ever-increasing pace we need to have people eat drink dress ride live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption you guys this is the world that they schemed together to create and if you think about it this is now the air that we breathe I saw one stat that said, in our country, we see on average 5,000 ads a day. The vast majority of which are aimed not at our rational thinking, but at our unconscious drives. You combine that with a, like surveillance capitalism that's on our phones and computers, right? The way that Facebook and Google and many others mine our online activities, like our Google searches and social media posts and whatever they can, all to target our unconscious drives and manipulate us to buy things or think things or vote for things. I mean think about how much is spent on advertising in our country every year. Have you ever thought about that? There have been times where I've gone, is it really worth it? Why would they spend that much money on advertising? It can't possibly be selling that many more products. It's insane. Why spend millions and millions of dollars on repetitive messages? Well, here's Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, who is senior scholar of Princeton's School of Psychology. And here's what he writes. He says, a reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Authoritarian institutions and marketers have always known this fact. So okay, let me summarize. My, uh, my hope is not to make everyone feel afraid. Let me summarize. There has been a concerted strategic effort to get Americans to change their consumptive habits, and it's working. In fact, just think for a sec. Think about the way that your grandparents lived. Think about their lifestyle, their patterns of consumption. You guys, what feels normal to us would, would have felt absolutely unthinkable to most of them. We consume twice as much material goods as people did 50 years ago. You guys, in in, in that same time period, in 50 years, the average home in America has tripled in size. So, like, before we go any farther today, I just want to say, what feels very normal to us is very much a new normal. And this new cultural moment, it affects all of us. Like to say to ourselves, well, those silly, weak-minded people out there being manipulated by big business and banks and and politicians, I'm sure glad I'm resistant to all of that pressure, right? I'm sure glad I don't fall for any of that stuff. I'm sure glad that I'm able to separate truth from lies and, and I know what leads to a good, happy life and I don't fall for all of that junk. Guys, that's a very arrogant and very naive way to think, like it's foolish. The materialism of our age is not just around us, it's in us. We feel this low-grade pressure to have more and do more all the time, and it's driving us to some really unhealthy behaviors. As a culture, we are less happy than previous generations. We, we live at a standard that our grandparents could not have possibly dreamed, and yet all of the research says that we are less happy. In fact, well-being has been on decline in the U.S. since 1952. Now, it's, it's, it's not fair to say, some of you are like, well, wait a minute. There's a little pushback. And I just want to say, that it, it, it's not fair to say that there's no correlation between happiness and lifestyle. There is. Research shows that people that are in poverty are less happy. And once they have enough food and a place to live and clothes and the basic necessities of life, they are in fact happier. There is a basic standard of living that is sort of required for peak happiness. And for people in poverty, the closer they get to that standard, the more happiness increases. But here's the thing. Once a person or family reaches that standard of living, some of you are like, well, what is that standard of of living? Well, Daniel Kahneman, again, Nobel Prize winner from Princeton, in a study published by Time Magazine, put that number at 75,000 for a family of four in the U.S. Okay, now, that study was in 2010, and that was like on average for our whole country, like people living in Wyoming and... Missouri and stuff like that so in Seattle 2022 what might it be I don't know maybe three million <laughs> right are you, are you kidding me this is an expensive place to live why do you guys live here uh, man but okay here's the point there is a basic standard of living that is just a little bit above the poverty line. But once people reach that standard, more money and more stuff does not equate to more happiness. In fact, research says it often produces less happiness. Uh, Robert C. Roberts, an ethicist from Baylor and an expert on Freud said, upward mobility often ends not in satisfaction and peace, but in exhaustion, disappointment and emptiness. Or in the words of the notorious B.I.G., say it with me, mo' money, mo' problems, baby. Robert Wuthnow is a professor of sociology and religion at Princeton, and he writes, "We, we live in a materialistic culture, and we want money and possessions, and very few people have heard a powerful voice telling them to resist those impulses or how to resist those impulses. He says, organized religion has not done a good job of challenging people to examine their lifestyles. That is so true. I mean, think about the prosperity gospel movement within Christianity. It's just crazy. And here's what's odd. If you look at the the core teachings of any of kind of the major religions, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism or whatever, they all, all teach about the need for consumptive limits they all endorse a moderation of lifestyle. But those teachings are being drowned out by our culture. Like even those that adhere to various religious expressions are being swept up by a whole nother religion. The loudest religious expression in our culture is materialism. The voice is saying to us in every way it can think to say it, you will only be happy if you get more. More is the key. More is the gateway. More is where your hope resides. So do what, So whatever else you do, if you want deeper happiness, you need to make sure you get more. And today on the whole, Christians and Buddhists and Jews all tend to believe this. Right? We, we go and we worship, but then this is coming at us, all, and we tend to believe this. Even though all of those faith systems scream out against that thinking. The great Christian sage, uh, Richard Foster, calls materialism, and I I love this, he says, it it is a rival religious philosophy about what constitutes blessedness. We in the West are guinea pigs in one huge experiment in consumption. You guys, all of the data says that more stuff, more greed, more materialism, more stuff, more affluence, nicer vacations... Better beers and, and wines and fancier cheeses and nicer hummuses and, and more <laughs> extravagant entertainment. That stuff, in the end, it does not lead to greater human flourishing. We, 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 we have accrued and achieved so much in our culture. But when you, when you stop and think about it, something is going terribly wrong. I mean, think about the way that most of us live most of the time. Most of us live with a nagging sense that we never have enough. It's like that famous line from, from Rockefeller, the oil tycoon, who at the time was the wealthiest man in the world. And he was asked by a journalist one time, like, how much money is enough, dude? And his iconic line was, just a little bit, what? More. More. And we all feel like that. We just never have enough hours in the day, or things in our closet, or stuff in our house, or money in our bank account. We just always need a little bit more. Contentment is always just outside of our reach. And we often feel torn in multiple directions which leads us to feel tired from like low-grade fatigue and and behind on everything and harassed by constant distraction. The, The lie of our culture of this present age is that more is better and it's actually wrecking us. And this is why Jesus says, wait, why would you want to live like that? I mean, have you ever thought about how much Jesus had to say about this stuff? Like it's crazy. Uh, let me let me just we're just gonna kind of quickly cruise through a bunch of different things that Jesus said. We're gonna start in Luke twelve, which is, which is it's just awesome stuff. Luke twelve verse thirteen, someone in the crowd said to him, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." Notice the person is attempting to get Jesus to endorse his greed in the name of what is socially acceptable and the norm. Jesus replied. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? That's not my job. I'm a rabbi. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard. Notice the double warning to drive the point home. Against all kinds of greed, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now Jesus is not saying that stuff is bad per se. Right, Jesus is not saying, you should feel terrible guilt and shame if you want more things. He's simply saying, that's not where the good life is found. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Notice that the ground yielded the harvest, not the rich man yielded. Like it was a byproduct of God's generosity and of rain and sun and soil and the hard work of a whole bunch of laborers in this man's field. So this man's wealth, all of it, was a gift from God. He thought to himself, what, should I, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. You ever have that? What shall I do with all my extra money? Now, remember, this is like an ancient, agrarian, like communal, Jewish society. It's not a modern individualist in big government society. Th- th- that question in and of itself would have been rhetorical in Jesus' day. What should I do with all my extra money? Well, the answer that everyone knew was share it with the poor, of course. Because in Israel during Jesus' day, there was no tax-based wealth redistribution. There were no government programs to serve the poor. There were no soup kitchens or homeless shelters. No social programs to provide for the disadvantaged. No cars for kids, right? In Israel, the plan was simple. The rich care for the poor. If you have been blessed deeply by God, share the blessing with those who are in need. That is the welfare system. That's the social justice system. But as he experiences this unprecedented windfall. He's not thinking of anyone else. He's not thinking of the poor. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he sort of then continues this inner dialogue. And as we read his thoughts, just notice the level of self-absorption. The words me and my and mine and I and myself that just keep coming up. Jesus, in doing this, is sort of mocking this man's inability to see anything beyond himself. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus of grain." In our language, I will sell my my business, diversify my portfolio, and live nicely off the dividends. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. So the goal isn't for this man to, to do something really meaningful and deep and serve others with his money. It's simply to maximize his intake of indulgence, to increase comfort and pleasure for himself. Jesus continues, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, Jesus' basic point is that the good life is not found in excess or surplus wealth. It's not found in early retirement or a life of unrestrained pleasure. On the contrary, the good life is found in self-giving love, of loving and being loved by others and by God in the kingdom. And this was a theme, you guys, that Jesus just kept coming back to. Scholars, some scholars estimate that, that as many as 25% of Jesus' teachings are on the subject of money and possessions. Can you imagine if every fourth message at Brookview was on money? I don't think most people would be real excited about that. But but Jesus sort of came back to this theme again and again. Why? Well, Jesus was not, it's not because he was raising money for his nonprofit. Uh, He was just very aware of the soul's dynamic, that at first we consume things, but eventually our things consume us. Jesus wasn't after his followers' money, he's after our hearts. For example, Jesus said things like, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The word blessed is makarios in Greek, and it just means, like, when you think blessed, just think happy. A more literal reading, and some translations even uh, translate it this way, it is like more happier. A a happier life is the byproduct of giving, not getting. Okay? A, A claim that social scientists have found to be true in study after study after study after study. Or you look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. No, it's not, hey, you shouldn't really try to serve both God and money. It just won't go all that well for you. Or, hey, it's, it's not really a great idea to try to do both. Jesus says, you cannot. You, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot. Money will take over your heart unless you take an active stance against its gravitational pull. Or here's Jesus in Matthew 19. Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in Jesus' view, excess or wealth is, is, is actually an obstacle to the good life. Not only is it not the pathway to the good life, it stands in the way. And notice that Jesus' teachings on money and stuff, and that's just a sampling, but notice they do not take the form of a command or a list of rules. Right? This is very open-ended, and it causes us to go, well, okay, but... Because like Jesus doesn't tell you how many pairs of shoes it's okay to own, or how many square feet per person is the right size house for a spiritual person, or what temperature to set the heat at at the you know in winter. Je- the whole point of this is Jesus is not giving us like more legalism; he's simply explaining to us how life actually works. His teach his teachings are statements about reality. He wants us to understand the way life works. And it's that if, you prim- if your primary focus is accruing more stuff and more pleasure, that you cannot then simultaneously serve God with your life. And there is a joy and a blessing that you will miss. The deepest kind of joy, the deepest kind of blessing. This is how life actually works. In, in the New Testament, writer's all continued this same line of thinking. Um, think about First Timothy chapter six. Paul writes, "But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And here's the famous line, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Man, is that true. I mean, as a pastor over the years, I have seen so much of that. Jesus followers worshiping stuff or prestige or success, sacrificing on that altar and then being pierced with many griefs. It's so hard to watch. It happens so often. Or here's a very similar statement from Hebrews 13. It says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Over and over again, Jesus and the New Testament writers and all of the spiritual masters down through church history all agree. The good life is not found in a new car or a nicer home or fine dining or early retirement. And they call us instead to a lifestyle of simple living, of like radical generosity, of grateful kind of joy in the ordinary pleasures of life and above all, to a deep contentment in God. Now, I I want to address a couple of things. First of all, Most of you already know this, right? If you've been in church, at least at this church, uh, you have heard this many, many times in various forms. Like if you read scripture, it's everywhere. You know this. Yet, if you're anything like me, you think, yeah, okay, Jesus, I hear you, but... Right? I mean, to be honest, I've been studying the way of Jesus and trying to live it for a couple of decades, and there is still something in me that just resists Jesus on this. There is still something in me that's like, yeah, okay, but like, where do you draw the line? I mean, I get that stuff isn't everything, but it's definitely something. (laughs) Right? Um, I've told you guys that my daughter, Kate, Turned me on to John Mark Comer, pastor down in Portland area from her church. Fantastic. Just like, it's been huge for me. Teacher of the way of Jesus that I've come to really respect. Well, Kate, every once in a while will turn me on to other teachers and philosophers and and, and all of that as well. And not long ago, I heard a teaching on money that just really resonated with me. And I think that this resonates with a lot of us, uh, probably many of you. And this comes from another spiritual and, like, philosophical guru, and his name is Chris Jansen. Any Chris Jansen fans in here? Come on, confess it. Nobody? Okay, maybe after today, here you go. Well, here are some of Chris Jansen's profound thoughts on money and stuff. Are you ready? I ain't rich, but I damn sure want to be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that had kicked a bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Can buy me a truck to pull it. Could buy me a Yeti 110 iced down with some silver bullets. Yeah, I know what they say money can't buy everything. Well, maybe so, but it can buy me a boat. They call me a redneck, white trash, and blue collar. But I could change all that if I had a couple million dollars. I keep hearing that money is the root of all evil and you can't fit a camel through, and I have a needle. I'm sure that's probably true, but it still sounds pretty cool. Because it can buy me a boat, and it can buy me a truck to pull it. Yeah, it can buy me a Yeti 110 ice down with some silver bullets. Yeah, I know what they say. Money can't buy everything. Well, maybe so, but it can buy me a boat. To float down on the water with a beer. I hear the Powerball lotto is sitting on 100 mil. Well, that would buy me a brand new rod and reel. And it could buy me a boat and a truck to pull it could buy me a yeti 110 ice down with some silver bullets yeah i know what they say money can't buy everything well maybe so but it could buy me a boat there's a little bit more to this and i'm going to keep going because i wouldn't want to you know short you guys yeah i know what they say money can't buy everything well maybe so but it can buy me a boat yeah it could buy me a boat Come on, Chris. Yeehaw. That is the good life, baby. Right? Amen. Well, wait, like, is it like, um, you know, it's interesting. Jesus had a lot to say about living simply, about simplicity. I just want to say that doesn't mean you can't have a boat or a truck to pull it. It does mean that if your primary goal is stuff and comfort and pleasure or success or prestige, you will miss real beauty that God has for you if that becomes your aim. So I want to spend a couple of weeks really thinking about the power of simplicity Many of us are just hounded by a sense that we can't have it all, and we can't do it all. And we look at the lives of other people, right? Are you kidding me? We look at the lives of other people on social media or whatever, and we're like, my life is lame. And in an effort to have it all and to do it all like them, we push ourselves to try to do the impossible, and we suffer chronic fatigue and chronic like dis- discontent- discontentment. So what if there is freedom and beauty in the way of Jesus? What if it's not legalism or a list of rules? What if you can still own a boat and a truck to pull it and you can have a 110 cooler with ice and silver bullets? And when you think about it, like, what, what, is, Jesus, what is Jesus saying? What, what is Christian simplicity? Are we, are we talking about selling everything and living in a van down by the river? Are, are we saying that we should feel guilt about ever wanting stuff or enjoying stuff? Are we talking about like the minimalism movement, but, but with Jesus added in? What does it mean to resist the love of money? What does it mean to be rich toward God? What is Christian simplicity? Well, let me just give you a, a few definitions that I think are helpful, bring some clarity to this. Uh, Richard Foster says it like this. He says, simplicity is an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. Uh, Joshua Becker, who's one of the most prominent proponents of minimalism, Um, He's a Christian, like seminary-trained Christian, but he writes and and does most of his stuff not particularly from a Christian perspective. But he says this. says, Simplicity is the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. And then here's John Mark Comer. Christian simplicity is limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where, where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. What is Christian simplicity? I guess maybe I would define it like this. It's, it's letting God guide me to the most meaningful things in life by limiting things that distract and prevent me from participating in those things. And this brings us to what we might call like the, the happiness paradox We've talked about this before at Brookview, but here's the paradox. I will never be happy if the ultimate goal of my life is to be happy. Like, you will never be happy if the ultimate goal of your life is for you to be happy. Happy is one of those things that comes to us only as a byproduct when we're pursuing something else, something bigger, something better. Meaning. There's, there's all kinds of research around this. The happiest people on earth are those whose lives are rich with meaning. What does it mean to be rich toward God? What, what if it's allowing Him to just steer you and guide you to the most meaningful life? Instead of pursuing the happy life, you let God lead you to meaning and you allow Him to lead you to a deeper kind of joy. So let me just ask you a couple of questions to consider. First, what are the most meaningful things in your life or what have been? What have been the most meaningful? As you have lived life, what have been some of the most meaningful parts of your life or the things that have happened in your life? What have they been? And second is, what tends to distract you from participating in those things? And here's why I think Christian simplicity is, I actually find it exciting and inspiring. Because it's not about limiting joy in my life. It's actually about increasing it. Jesus is not, in these teachings, trying to be a buzzkill. He wants to set my heart on fire. Christian, spiritual, uh, Christian simplicity is, is about intentionally making space, carving out space for the meaningful. What are the most meaningful things in your life? Like What have been and, and what could potentially be in the, as you move forward? What if you limit things that distract you from all of that stuff? You guys, this isn't lame. This, this is really, really cool actually. Um, I want to give you guys just one example from kind of life over the last few months for me. Um, as many of you know, our family is big into basketball. And so, Kate is finishing her college career at George Fox University, go Bruins. And when she's done, she plans to teach and coach basketball. And um, for the last couple of years, since that's been her thing, it's been like my plan is, hey, I want to come alongside of you and be like your your little pet assistant coach one day. (laughs) Because I love kids and I love basketball and I love coaching and I love serving families and being connecting with people in this. I, I love it. And I think that Kate and I would make really a phenomenal team working together. And so I'm like, we're, we're in sync, like with our basketball philosophy and just culture of a team and, and all of that stuff. We just really click. Now, I would keep being a pastor. Some of you are like, you're gonna quit and go be a basketball coach? No, I, be, uh, because assistant basketball coaches don't get paid very much, like zero. Okay, so. So, Kate's dream has been to eventually coach in, in high school. That's been kind of the dream all along, to, to build a program, to build a feeder program that comes into the high school and be, be a high school coach, and just, like, win state championships and crush and grind other people's teams into tears. <laughs> in the name of Jesus. Um, but over Christmas break, um, Kate got a little bit different vision, and she, she shared it with us. And one night, we're just kind of sitting around the living room, not doing anything. And all of a sudden, Kate's like, she says to Jen and I, you know what? I'm not sure I want to coach basketball, like, in high school, like, as a high school coach. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> this is my plan for my life. What are you talking about? Like, this is, now this is affecting my dream. So she went on and she's like, well, if the ultimate goal is to impact kids and families in the deepest way possible. There are all kinds of limits when you're a high school coach. Like you can only coach those kids in the season for a couple of months. You have the kids for a couple of months, but you're not allowed to work with them outside of that and you don't really have much opportunity to spend time with the families. It's, it's really just the kids. On top of that, there's a lot of pressure to win and it affects how much playing time certain kids get. And that's really tough on your relationship with those particular kids. So there are all these things that kind of distract in that environment from really what my ultimate goal is. The whole reason I wanna coach is I want to impact people, not just win games. So she's like, so, so here's what I'm thinking. I'm like, please tell me what you're thinking. She's like, so I'm thinking I would like to start with like a little youth team, like third grade girls. And if possible, I would like to coach them as long as they will let me coach them all the way through high school if possible. That way I could coach them year round. And we'd be serious about basketball and we would win games and tournaments and all of that. But the priority would always be on developing those girls as players and, and even more so as people. And I would always play all of them. Maybe not perfectly, equally, depending on the game, but everybody would play a lot. There would be none of this nonsense where certain kids ride the bench like some of the teams. Kate said that like, like Cam and I played on growing up. There will be none of that BS. If the kids are on the team, they play. And we coach them up and they play. And because none of the players are our family, none of them are our kid, we build into all the kids without any of the bias of, of any of us being like parent coaches. And we build a team culture where we work really hard to build a team culture where the kids root for each other and support each other and celebrate each other. And she's like, she's like, I know I can do this. And the reason I know is because I've done this everywhere I've coached. And so I'm sitting there in the living room and I'm listening to her and I'm like, I'm feeling my heart like explode. I'm like, yes, yes, amen, preach it sister. (laughs) Because you do have the ability to do that. You do that everywhere you coach. You've always, and and I could be a part of that with you. And she went on, she's getting more excited. She's like, "I, I could coach those girls year round from third grade, potentially all the way through high school, and for those that, that want to keep playing. And if any of them have the ability and the desire to play in college, I can help them with that. If we teach skills and build character from third grade on, some of those kids might actually become like really good. And I don't know where this might go, but, but nine years with kids and their whole families beats a few months with just a few of the kids. I, I want to build a culture where these families connect with each other and actually have community with each other. She's like, when I played, the parents all secretly wanted their kid to outshine all the other kids. None of you would ever do that, but I'm telling you, in Teo, <laughs> they saw other families as a threat a lot of the time. They saw other players and other families as a threat. Parents didn't sit next to each other in the gym. They barely talked to each other. And kids, like, it could be different. I know it could. So we're, we're having this conversation, and Jen's kind of minding her own business, and that's when we both, like, look at Jen. We're like, oh, new part of the vision. <clears throat> Jen has this ability and this desire to have families come together and, and enjoy each other in this. And, and in these last years with Brooks' teams, Jen has loved to, like, create spaces where f- the families can connect, like the whole family. So a couple of years ago, we had, uh, we had Brooklyn and a couple of her three of her teammates played in this like three on three tournament uh, in the summertime. It was a two day thing up in Arlington and, and they played like all, all day Saturday and then all day Sunday. So on Saturday night after the first day of games, <clears throat> we had all the families over to our house for dinner. And um, so the girls had a slumber party at our house and it was super fun. I coached, uh, Jen hosted the families, Brooke hosted the girls. And I know that all of you are wondering, we lost in the championship in overtime, so I know, yeah, okay, okay, but that, yes, that Saturday night uh, is one that I'll remember for a really long time. Before that weekend, we had really only known these families, like, casually, because these were all girls that played on a club out of Ballard, And, um, and so we knew them, kind of, but that night, they came over for dinner, and you guys, it was so cool, they came over for food and wine and beer and, and over, over a meal in that environment, we just talked and talked and talked. And those people like they opened up in some really deep ways. They asked us about our life and we shared some of, the, some of the hard things about our life. And that triggered them sharing some of the hard things about their life. And it just got really deep and they talked very vulnerably. And there was a real sense of community and it got, it got really late and nobody wanted to leave. And I was like, you guys got to (laughs) go. They just stayed, kept talking, and the conversation would die down. And then Jen would ask another question. And I'm like, babe, no, let it die. (laughs) That's what she does. But before the night was over, they just like thanked us again and again and again for organizing this tournament and getting uniforms for the girls and then having them all over and having the sleepover. And they just kept saying like, you guys, this was so fun. We need to do more of this. Like, when can we do this again? When's the next time? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you guys, here's the thing. That weekend was super meaningful for me. It was so cool. So as Kate talked, We got a vision of Jen like having her role to play in all of this and hosting dinners and we were doing barbecues and stuff. And we got visions of off-court hangouts and just anything we could do to build community among the families. And Jen could help the parents like sit together at games and enjoy each other like, hey, come over. Let's sit together And, and and then just enjoy each other between games because Jen's like passionate about that. And really gifted at it. And say to the parents, hey, we're not going to scream at other people's kids. And we're not going to be super negative. Uh, like this, we're going to create a whole culture that it envelops whole families in, in something that's really positive. So to be honest, we're sitting there that night. And we all just sort of like caught this vision. And it was so cool. Like a context for our family to be in, investing in people. In, in something really meaningful. But all of it is because Kate said, hey, maybe the prestige and money of coaching high school would actually distract me. Maybe the better way to impact girls and families is like a little youth team that we could stay with for a long time. And maybe we would be able to model Jesus and maybe down the road even share Jesus with people in a way that could be dynamic. What do you guys think of that? Now, to do this, we'd all need to make some sacrifices. We would need to make room. Kate would need to be a volunteer instead of a paid coach. She wouldn't get the accolades, wouldn't get the prestige. Man, but meaning? Wow. And Jen and I would need to carve out time and money to be able to make this kind of thing work. But I'll tell you what, you guys. I have no idea if this is going to work. I have no idea if it's going to come to fruition. I have no idea if... Kate starts coaching and they go, you suck, we're out of here. I I don't know, I don't know how it's going to go. But I'm like, this could work. And it could be really, really beautiful. And to me, it's like super exciting. And to tell you the truth, I think this is the kind of thing that is living life in such a way that, that we're rich toward God. Christian simplicity isn't about all the stuff you don't have and don't do. It's about freeing up time, energy, and resources for the most meaningful things. It's about limiting distractions so that you can do the better stuff. So as we kind of launch into this series, I just want to close with these basic questions. What are the most meaningful things in your life? What have they been? What are they currently? What might they be as you move forward? What are the things that have enabled you to impact people? Things that get your pulse racing because they're meaningful. What have those things been and what, and what could they be? What in your life then needs to be cut back to make more space for that stuff? What distracts you from doing the most meaningful things? And this is what we're going to think about for several weeks together. I'm, I'm actually super excited about this because I think these are foundational, critical questions. Father in heaven, I thank you for, for loving me in spite of just all of my immaturity and flaws. And I, I see Jesus's words about love of money and, and where it leads. And yet I know that I struggle with that kind of thing all the time. And we all do. And you love us and you meet us right where we're at. But you're inviting us to a better way. And God, I pray that as, as, we, as we move through these next several weeks, um, that you would just kind of turn lights on for us in places where we could focus our energy on things that matter more and produce a greater amount of joy. God, we, we love you. And Jesus, I trust that you're, you're, you are in touch with reality of the way the world actually works. And I just pray that you would lead us into the good life. Would you lead us into the good life? Amen.